Section 37 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. My imagination was so powerfully excited, I may say over-excited, by the accounts I had heard and read concerning this very city, that here once more my expectations were far from being realized. This was, perhaps, partly owing to the circumstance that I had already seen Constantinople and had just quitted Palermo, the situation of which latter town had so enchanted me that my enthusiasm was here confined within very narrow bounds, and I felt inclined to prefer Palermo to Naples. At two o'clock in the afternoon I landed, and the kind assistance of Herr Brettschneider at once procured me an excellent room in Santa Lucia, with the prospect of the harbour and the bay, besides a view of Vesuvius and the region surrounding it. As usual I wished to commence my researches at once, but already in Palermo I had felt an unceasing pain in my side, so that my last walks there had been attended with considerable difficulty. Here I became really ill, and was unable to quit my room. I had a boil on my back, which required the care of the surgeon, and kept me in my room for a fortnight until the fever had abated. If this misfortune had happened to me in the East, or even while I was in quarantine at Malta, who knows whether I should not have been looked upon as having a plague boil, and shut up for forty days. During my imprisonment here, my only relaxation during the hours when I was free from fever and it did not rain, was to sit on the balcony, contemplating the beautiful prospect, and looking on the bustling, lively populace. The Neapolitans appeared to me to be very ill-behaved, boisterous, and quarrelsome, and seemed to entertain a great horror of work. The latter circumstance seems natural enough, for they require little for their daily support, and we hardly find that the common people anywhere work more than is necessary to shield them from immediate want. This is particularly the case in Italy, where the heat is oppressive during the day, and the temperature of the evening so agreeable that every one wishes to enjoy himself rather than to work. I sometimes saw men employed themselves for half a day together in pushing bullets with a little stick through a ring fastened to the ground. This is one of the most popular games. The women are always sitting or standing in front of the houses, chattering or quarrelling, and the children lie about in the streets all day long. The various trifle suffices to breed a quarrel among young or old, and then they kick one another with their feet, a very graceful practice for women or girls. Even with their knives they are ready on all occasions. For making observations on the Neapolitans, no better post can be chosen than a lodging in the quarter St. Lucia. The fishermen, lazzaroni, and sailors live in the little side lanes, and spend the greater part of the day in the large streets of St. Lucia, the chief resort both for pedestrians and people on horseback and in carriages. In and about the harbour we find numerous vendors of oysters and crabs, which they bring fresh from the sea. The lazzaroni no longer go about half-naked, and the common people are dressed in a decent, though not in a picturesque, manner. Here a number of handsome equipages rolled by, their lady occupants were very fashionably attired. Even among the better classes it is usual for the men to purchase all the household necessaries, such as fish, bread, poultry, etc., 
Poultry is very much eaten in Italy, particularly turkeys, which are sometimes sold ready cut up, according to weight. On Sundays and holy days the shops containing wares and provisions, and the meat and poultry stalls, are opened in the same way as on a weekday. Throughout all Italy we do not see them closed for the observance of a Sunday or holy day. On the fifteenth day I had so far recovered that I could begin my tour of observation, using, however, certain precautions. At first I confined my researches to churches, palaces, and the museum, particularly as the weather was unprecedentedly bad. It rained, or rather poured, almost every day, and in these cases the water rushes in streams out of the by-lanes towards the sea. The greater part of Naples is built on an acclivity, and there are no gutters, so that the water must force its way along the streets. This has its peculiar advantages, for the side-lanes, which are filthy beyond description, thus get a partial cleansing by the stream. As I am not a connoisseur, it would be foolish in me to attempt a criticism upon the splendid productions of art which I beheld here, in Rome, and at Florence and other places. I can only recount what I saw. During my excursions I generally regulated my movements according to the divisions and instructions contained in August Lewald's handbook, a work which every traveller will find very serviceable and correct. I began with the royal palace, which was situate near my lodging at St. Lucia, with one front facing the sea, and the other turned towards a large, fine square. This building contains forty-two windows in a row. I could see nothing of its interior excepting the richly decorated chapel, as the royal family resided there during the whole time of my stay, and thus the apartments were not accessible to strangers. Opposite the castle stands the magnificent rotunda, also called the Church of San Francesco de Paola. Adjoining this church on either side were arcades in the form of a half-circle, supported by handsome pillars, beneath which several shops are established. The roof of the rotunda is formed by a splendid cupola, resting on thirty-four marble pillars. The altars, with the niches between, occupied by colossal statues, are ranged round the walls, and in some instances decorated by splendid modern paintings. A great quantity of lapis lazuli has been used in the construction of the grand altar. In the higher regions of the cupola, two galleries, with tasteful iron railings, are to be seen. The entire church, and even the confessionals, are covered with a species of grey marble. The peculiar appearance of this place of worship is exceedingly calculated to excite the visitor's wonder, for to judge from its exterior he would scarcely take the splendid building before him for a church. It was built on the model of the famous rotunda at Rome, but the idea of the porticos is taken from St. Peter's. Two large equestrian statues of bronze form the ornaments of the square before this church. Quitting this square we emerge into the two finest and most frequented streets in the town, namely the Chiaga and Toledo. Not far off is the imposing theatre of St. Carlo, said to be not only the largest in Italy, but in all Europe. Its exterior aspect is very splendid. A large and broad entrance extends in front, with pillars beneath the shelter of which the carriages drive up, so that the spectators can arrive and depart without the chance of getting wet. This evening there was to be a particularly grand performance. I entered the theatre, and was much struck with its appearance. It contains six tiers, all parcelled off into boxes, 
of which I counted four and twenty on the grand circle. Each box is almost the size of a small room, and can easily accommodate from twelve to fifteen people. A fairy-like spectacle is said to be produced when, on occasions of peculiar festivity, the whole exterior is lighted up. Here, as in nearly all the Italian theatres, a clock, showing not only the hours but the minutes, is fixed over the front of the stage. A particular performance convinces at six o'clock, and usually terminates an hour or two before midnight. This evening I saw a little ballet, then two acts of an opera, and afterwards a comedy, the whole concluding with a grand ballet. It is usual on the benefit nights to give a great variety of entertainments in order to attract the public. On these occasions the prices are also reduced one-fifth. The greatest square, Largo del Castello, almost adjoins the theatre. It is of an oblong form, and contains many palace-like buildings, including the finance and police offices. A pretty spring, the water of which falls down some rocks and forms a cascade, is also worthy of mention. A little to the left we come upon the Medina Square, boasting the finest fountain in Naples. Between these two squares, beside the seashore, lies Castel Nuovo, said to be built quite in the form of the Bastille. It is strongly fortified, and serves as a defense for the harbor. This is a very lively neighborhood. Many an hour's amusement have I had, watching the motley crowd, particularly on Sundays and holy days, when it is frequented by improvisators, singers, musicians, and mountebanks of every description. Not far from the harbor is a long street in which numerous kitchens and many provision stalls are established. Here I walked in the evenings to see the people assembled round the macaroni pots. It is advisable, however, to leave watch and purse at home, and even one's pocket handkerchief is not safe. Of the shouting and crowding here no conception can be formed. Large kettles are placed in front of the shops, and the proprietors sit beside them, plunging a great wooden fork and spoon into the cauldron to fill the plates of expectant customers. Some eat their favorite dish with fat and cheese, others without, according to the state of their exchequer for the time being, but one and all eat with their fingers. The army of hungry mortals seems innumerable, and during feeding time the stranger finds no little difficulty in forcing a passage, notwithstanding the breadth of the street. Not far from this thoroughfare of the people, the two punchinellos are erected. In one of these the marionettes are a foot and a half, in the other no less than three feet high. There is, besides, a theatre for the people, where pieces of tragic and comic character are performed, in all of which the clown plays a prominent part. The remaining theatres, the Nuovo, the Carlini, and others, are about the size of those in the Leopold and Josephat at Vienna, and can accommodate about eight hundred spectators. Their exteriors and interiors are alike undistinguished, but in some of them the singing and playing are very creditable. In one of these theatres we are obliged to descend instead of to ascend to reach the pit in the first tier of boxes. Naples contains more than three hundred churches and chapels. I visited a number of them, for I entered every church that came my way. St. Fernando, a church of no great size, but of very pleasing appearance, struck me particularly. The ceiling of this edifice is covered with frescoes, and the walls enriched with marble. 
At the two side altars we find a pair of very fine half-length pictures of saints. St. Jesu Nuovo, another exceedingly handsome church, stands on the borders of the Lago Maggiore, and is full of magnificent frescoes, surrounded by arabesque borders. The latter appear as though they were gilded, and the effect thus produced is remarkably fine. This spacious building contains a number of small chapels, partitioned off by massive gratings. The great cupola is exceedingly handsome, and every chapel boasts a separate one. St. Jesu Maggiore does not carry out its appellation, for it is a small, unpretending church, though some splendid Gothic ornaments beautify the exterior. St. Maria de Piedigrata, another little church, is much frequented, from the fact that the common people place great confidence in the picture of the Virgin there displayed. The church contains nothing worthy of notice. The grotto of Posilip, a cavern of immense length, now called Puzzoli, is not far distant. This grotto, hewn out of a rock, is about twelve hundred paces long, between fifty and sixty feet in height, and of such breadth that two carriages can easily pass each other. A little chapel cut out of the rock occupies the middle of the cavern, and both grotto and chapel are illuminated night and day. As in the whole of Naples, the pavement here is formed of lava from Mount Vesuvius. Immediately above the grotto, in the direction of the town, we come upon a simple gravestone of white marble, the monument of the poet Virgil. A long flight of steps leads to the garden containing this monument. The poet's ashes do not, however, rest here. The spot where he sleeps cannot be accurately determined, and this monument is only raised to his memory. The prospect from these heights as well repays a visit to the grotto of Posilip, where we wander for a long time in deep darkness, until we suddenly emerge into the broad light of day, to find ourselves surrounded by a most lovely landscape. The public garden of Naples is also situate in this quarter of the town. It extends to the lower portion of the Strada Chiaga, is of great length without being broad, and displays a vast number of beautiful statues, prospects, and ware plants. A large and handsome street, containing many fine houses, adjoins it on one side. I also rode to the Vomero, on which are erected the king's pleasure palace and a small convent. A glorious prospect here unfolds itself, Naples with its bay, Puzzoli, and a number of beautiful islands, the Lake Agnaro, the extinct craters of Solfatara, Bay, Vesuvius, with its chain of mountains, and the stupendous ocean, lie grouped, in varied forms and gorgeously blending colors, before the gaze of the astonished spectator. This is the place of which the Neapolitans say, with some justice, Hither should men come, and gaze, and die. Still, the prospects from St. Rosalia's Mount, and from the royal palace Favorita at Palermo, had better pleased me, for there the beauties of nature are more crowded together, are nearer to the spectator. He can obtain a more complete view of them, while in varied gorgeousness they do not yield the palm even to the fairy pictures of Naples. I more than once spent half a day in the Academy degli Studi, for in this place much was to be seen. The entrance to the building is indescribably beautiful. Both the portico and the handsome staircases are ornamented with statues and busts executed in most artistic style. 
A door on the right leads us to a hall, in which the paintings from Pompeii and Herculaneum are displayed. Several of these relics have no small pretensions to beauty, and the colors of almost all are still wonderfully bright and fresh. In the great hall at the end of the courtyard we find on one side the Farnese Hercules, and on the other the bull, both works of the Athenian Glycon. These two antiques, particularly the latter, have been in a great measure restored. The gallery of great bronzes is considered the first in the world, for here we find united the finest works of ancient times. So many beautiful creations of art were here brought together, that if I attempted a description of them I should not know where to begin. Opposite the gallery of bronzes is that allotted to the marbles, among which a beautiful Venus stands prominently forth. In the gallery of Flora a statue of the same goddess, called the Farnese, is also the principal attention. A statue of Apollo playing on the lyre, of Porphyry, is the greatest masterpiece in the hall of colored marbles, while in the gallery of the Muses a basin of Athenian Porphyry occupies the first place. In the Adonis room the beautiful Venus Anadyomene engrossed my chief attention, and in the cabinet of Venus the Venus Callipagos forms an exquisite side-piece to the Venus de Medicis. The upper regions of this splendid building contain an extensive library and a picture-gallery. I also paid a visit to the catacombs of St. Janarius, which extend three stories high on a mountain, and are full of little niches, five or six of which are often found one above the other. In the chapel Santa Maria della Pietà, in the palace St. Severino, I admired three of the finest and most valuable marble statues that can be found anywhere. I mean, veiled innocence, malice in a net, and a veiled recumbent figure of Christ. All three are by the sculptor Bernini. The largest church in the town is the cathedral dedicated to St. Janarius. This structure rests on a hundred and ten columns of Egyptian and African granite, standing three by three, embedded in the walls. The church has not a very imposing appearance. The chief altar, beneath which the body of St. Janarius is deposited, is ornamented with many kinds of valuable marble. Here I saw a great number of pictures, most of them of considerable merit. The chapel of St. Janarius, also called the Chapel of the Treasure, is one of the most gorgeous shrines that can be conceived. The Neapolitans built it as a thank-offering at the cessation of a plague. The cost was above a million of ducats, and the wealth of this chapel is greater than that of any church in Christendom. It is built in a circular form, and all the resources of art have been lavished on the decoration of the chief altar. Every spot is covered with treasures and works of art, and the roof is supported by forty-two Corinthian pillars of dark red stone. All the decorations of the high altar, the immense candelabra and massive flower-vases, are of silver. At a grand festival, when everything is richly illuminated, the appearance of this chapel must be gorgeous in the extreme. The head and two bottles of the blood of St. Janarius are preserved here. The people assert that this blood liquefies every year. The frescoes on the ceiling are splendidly painted, and on the square before the church is to be seen an obelisk surmounted by a statue of St. Janarius. St. Geronimo has an imposing appearance when one first enters. 
The whole roof of this church, as far downwards as the pillars, is covered with beautiful arabesques and figures. It also contains some fine paintings, and is besides renowned for its architecture. St. Paola Maggiore, another spacious church, is well worth seeing on account of its magnificent arabesques and fresco paintings. Besides these, it also contains some handsome monuments and statues of marble. Two very ancient pillars stand in front of the church. St. Chiara, a fine, large church, offers some fine monuments and oil paintings. Among the excursions in the neighborhood of Naples, that to Pozzoli is certainly the most interesting. After passing through the great grotto, we reach the ancient and rather important town of Pozzoli, with eight thousand inhabitants. Cicero called this place a little Rome. In the center of the town stands the church of St. Proculus, which was converted from a heathen into a Christian temple, and is surrounded by fine-looking Corinthian pillars. Remarkable beyond all else is the ruined temple of Seriopus. Almost the entire magnitude and arrangement of this magnificent building can yet be discerned. A few of the pillars that once supported the cupola are still erect, and several of the cells, which surrounded the temple and were once used as baths, can still be seen. Everything here is of fine white marble. The greater portion of the ruin was dismantled to be used in the construction of the royal villa of Caserta. The harbor of Pozzoli is related to have been the finest in Italy. From this place Caligula had a bridge erected to Bailly, about four thousand paces in length. He undertook this gigantic work in consequence of a prophecy that was made to him that he would no more become emperor than he could ride to Bailly on horseback. This prophecy he confuted, and became emperor. Of the amphitheatre and the Colosseum not a trace remains. A little chapel now occupies the site on which they stood. Tradition asserts that it is built on the very spot where St. Genarius was thrown to the bears. Not far from this chapel we are shown the labyrinth of Daedalus. Several of its winding walks still exist, through which it would be difficult to find the way without a Cicerone. We ascended the hill immediately beyond the city, on which some remains of Cicero's villa are yet to be seen. Here we enjoyed a splendid prospect. End of section 37